0: 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to Elders past, present and emerging of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Oh, Autonomous news, analysis That's and current man. affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am oh, to late 30am. Only double... Good morning. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. The time is 7 a.m. We have a very special show for you today. Last Thursday evening, we had the absolute pleasure of listening to Anya Saravanan, previous brekkie host and current member of the Women on the Line team, talk to a panel of incredible journalists for an event titled Classroom to Newsroom, Racial Gatekeeping in Australian Media. This was an original idea by Ayan Shirwa, who many 3CR listeners know, put together by Anya, supported by the Brecky team, and in collaboration with Democracy in Colour. So, today, we have a recording of that discussion for you. I'll let Anya and the panellists introduce themselves and the topic, as they do a far better job of that than me. Thank you so much to Carly from Thursday Brecky for giving up most of her weekend to edit this show. We are honestly so grateful. We apologize in advance for some of the poor sound quality. Online recording has its ups and downs. And just a warning that Madeline briefly discusses suicide in her first answer. Listeners should also be advised that the names of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who have passed away are mentioned throughout.
1: Hello everyone. Before we begin, I acknowledge that I'm on the sovereign land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and that many of you are attending this event from different unceded stolen lands. I pay my respect to Elders past, present and future, and to any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are joining us today for this event. Uh, Thank you so much for coming. My name is Anya. I produce and present a show called Women on the Line on 3CR. Fantastic show. You must listen. So briefly, the background to this event Something that's often trotted out as an excuse for the lack of diversity in any space is the idea that diverse people don't apply or have the right sort of experience or skills for that role, and that decisions are made on a merit basis. And this excuse was also put on display again when the report from Media Diversity Australia came out. We want to challenge that and talk about the various institutional barriers and gatekeeping mechanisms which prevent that sort of engagement from diverse people. It's a big, broad discussion, and we acknowledge that this panel isn't going to cover everything, but hopefully it'll be the start of some important discussions. I'm very excited to talk today to um, four incredible journalists about this. Our panel is Osman Faruqi, Madeline Heyman-Riva, a regional, and Jim Mallow. Normally we'd be doing this in a cool space with a little bar at the side and probably have an after party, but, you know, the situation is it is what it is. And so please settle in with a drink of your choice, I have, um, and I hope you get something out of it. We acknowledge that some parts of the discussion might be triggering for whatever reason, so look after yourselves, take a time out if you need. The event will also be recorded and played on Tuesday breakfast next week. So if you miss anything, it's always going to be podcasted as well. The panelist bios are everywhere on the internet, really, so um, you'll you'll know them. Uh, so I'm not going to read out their bios, but I'm going to ask the panelists to introduce yourselves, however you want, and talk to us about your path to where you are at the moment. Maybe we'll start with uh, Madeline.
2: Hello, everyone. I'm Madeline heyman reba um, I'm a freelance Indigenous journalist at the moment. Currently, actually, doing a two-month uh, well little bit more than a two-month contract with uh, Senator Lydia Thorpe, the first Victorian um, Aboriginal senator, which is a Green senator, sorry, so that's really exciting. Um, I'm on Gundungurra country tonight uh, in Goulburn, New South Wales. I came back here during the pandemic because it was a bit hectic in Melbourne and I wasn't sure, you know, when I'd see my family again, so I temporarily moved back and I've been lucky enough to be working out of Parliament House, which um, I've never worked there before, so been exciting to get everything set up. Um, Before that though I was uh, uh, the Victorian correspondent for NITV News um, and I moved to I moved from Sydney to uh, Melbourne maybe two and a half three years ago to take on that role Um, and I was the only NITV person in the SBS office so it was really fun and exciting. I was the first um, Victorian correspondent as well so was able to build up that contact base and stuff for them um, and get really involved in the Victorian Aboriginal community and now like that's my I feel like that's my home now um, I'm a Gomeroy woman though but uh, from northwestern New South Wales. I actually grew up in Goulburn though with my mum and I started my career at the Goulburn Post the local paper here when I was 17. I um, did it the old school way so straight out of school I got a cadetship um, with Fairfax Regional Digital, I think it was back then. Um, And I was there for maybe a year and a half before I was offered a job in Sydney at Fairfax Regional Digital, which was like like the national kind of head of all of the little papers around the country, creating content for them. And then I moved back to Goulburn because I really hated the city (laughs) and worked at um, Deadly Vibe magazine, which was an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander national magazine. and at kids, so it would go to schools and be distributed kind of for free. Um, we talk about a whole heap of different Indigenous issues, and there was also a sides project which was In Vibe magazine, um, and that went to all the prisons, um, all the Aboriginal prisoners, and we talk more about sexual health and that kind of stuff in the more adult issues in in that. Um, yeah, and then unfortunately, when Tony Abbott got into government, he cut the funding to the Indigenous sector a lot, and um, Unfortunately the man who started Deadly Vibe it had been going for about twenty five years um was so upset that he um you know, killed himself and that was really difficult. So I said to myself after that, I won't go back into journalism unless it's something that um you know, something that's helping the community and to continue his work, I guess. So um, I took a little bit of time off, maybe a year, um, before I moved to NITV. And that work has been stuff that I've really loved to do, tell it, like storytelling, um, telling the stories of my people and my community and really amplifying their voices. And I guess that's how I've kind of gotten into be an advocate for media diversity as well. Um, so now I'm part of Media Diversity Australia, the Victorian branch. And, yeah, it's been really good.
3: Thank you. Osmond? Hey, everyone. Hi. Um, Thanks to 3CR and Democracy in Colour for putting this event on. Thanks to everyone who's spending their evening listening to us talk. Um, One thing that Maddie forgot to mention in her great spiel about how um, all the amazing work she does is uh, she didn't say that she hosts a show with me. Um, Sorry. (laughs) um, On on the much less cool Melbourne community radio station.
2: uh, In the highlight of my career too. Um,
3: uh, yeah, so, and Jim actually has, has, uh, hosted that show a little bit with us, so. You need to
4: watch out because, uh, Bez is listening as well, so she heard you say uh, it's less cool. <laughs>
3: um, so I, uh, currently work at Schwartz Media, which is a media company based in Melbourne. It publishes the Saturday paper and the monthly, and I work as the editor of their JL News podcast, 7am, but I also write across the, the different titles there. I actually moved to Melbourne just earlier this year in January to take up that job. So I managed to get like six weeks of Melbourne in before um, we got locked down um, for what feels like forever. And prior to that, I was at the ABC as the deputy editor of a project called ABC Life that was established a couple of years earlier to um, provide quite explicitly in its focus like uh, stories about more diverse communities in Australia and try and bring in an audience into the ABC that wasn't the traditional ABC audience of kind of middle-aged white people who live in the North shore of Sydney and and, and the inner West. Um, I guess I had a a, a pretty non-traditional path to journalism. Like I wish it's so interesting hearing Maddie talk about her career, you know, going from 17 to, to kind of working as a cadet there. I, you know, when I was 17, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I studied um, engineering at university in Sydney because I'm brown and that's what people do. Both my parents are engineers and I was like, I guess that's what I should do as well. And at uni, I was lucky enough to to write for the student paper and that was the first time I really got to like use my writing skills, I guess, in 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 journalism. And it kind of gave me a bit of a passion for that. And I worked at FBI Radio, which is a community radio station in Sydney. I used to host their uh news and current affairs show back chat and those two things I was just kind of doing the volunteer things that I liked doing whilst my professional career was in a totally different space in politics actually. And I got kind of fed up with politics um when I was, you know, in my early twenties and thought I wanted to I, I, I saw a landscape in the media that was both influential in its ability to kind of tell stories and shape the conversation, but really lacking in experiences. And at that time I wasn't even really thinking about race and and, and the lack of focus that the media had on telling stories of people from different um, racial backgrounds. It was just, I was a young person. I was interested in politics and I wanted to write about that. And so um, I got my career started by writing freelance columns for places like Vice and The Guardian. And then I got offered a role as news and politics editor at Junkie Media. And it was kind of just by virtue of, of being the only brown person that that company ever hired and, at that stage, the only non-white person who was working in youth media in in Australia, you know, across BuzzFeed, Junkie and Pedestrian, that I realised that this was a problem and it became something that I became quite passionate about. And like Maddie, I was involved in helping set up Media Diversity Australia, though I'm not involved anymore and um, just, you know, been lucky enough to jump from one organisation to another doing a whole bunch of stuff. But the reason why I kept mentioning community radio is like, quite generally, it's awesome that places like 3CR exist and can put on panels like this. And even though now I'm pretty, I guess, sort of established in my career and, and have a full-time job that I really love, I really love doing the community radio stuff because it's just been the most um rewarding part of what I do. And I think I, we'll probably talk about it in more detail, but it's not a coincidence, I think, that there are shows like Gaspar Blues um, and, and shows like Maddie and mine at, 3S, at, at, at 3RRR because it has been a pathway for so many people that have been locked out of traditional media environments. Um, but, yeah, that's basically it.
1: Thank you for the plug about community radio. I mean, I think everyone on this panel has been on community radio, so we'll definitely talk about that as well. Uh, Jim, you're next.
4: Hi, I'm Jim. Um, I got my start in uh, journalism probably when I was in high school. I actually started working at a community radio station. I'd volunteer there once a week, um, not necessarily doing journalism sort of thing. It was kind of hard given that I was only about like 14 years old or something uh, to have a focus on news. But it, um, it's sort of like it looked at You know, just music and like pop culture and that sort of thing. And it gave me, you know, this, a base of uh, skills to, to move on to um, other opportunities in media. So from there, I also did some uh, news work for 4 triple Z in Brisbane. Uh, I only did that for a few months, but then from there, I moved on to doing some internships for channel seven. And then once I had done my time being an intern, which was uh, nearly a year, I think. Uh, I went to do an internship with, um, uh, Channel 7 in Sunshine Coast, which also, um, was sort of like a fake job interview. And, um, after I finished up there, after about two or three days, they offered me a job at, um, in Harvey Bay. So I started my career as a journalist, um, full-time work, um, as, as a, the, the journalist for Harvey Bay. Um, that wasn't, um, and I feel like all these, uh, sort of, uh, opportunities that I got, except for maybe 4 triple Z, um, were also very dependent on, uh, me having a very, uh, Australian sort of, uh, manner of speaking and, and manner of being. I think that really helps me there. Uh, I don't think, um, in Caboolture where I grew up, I would have gotten on, uh, the community radio station had I, um, you know, not to, like, I'm sure it would be. I'm not sure that this is the case, but I feel like it really helped me to uh to get my spot on there isn't that I um, I talk in a very sort of Australian way. So uh that was my first part of my career from there I moved from uh from Channel Seven into Domain because I was looking to get back from the regions into a city. Um and from I've been in Domain ever since. Um so more recently I've um had uh, some opportunities um in uh crikey i have an op-ed published by them um i've also been on maddie and osmond show which is very nice of them um and i've also uh been sort of making my way around a couple of podcasts recently which you should listen to if you um feel the need so yeah a lot of um these recent opportunities that i've had i think have almost entirely come from uh knowing uh you know people in the industry and i have to thank a lot of my recent success to people like uh, maddie and oz who have really helped me out um maddie gave me the contact to uh you know pass on uh my uh op-ed to peter Frey, and i probably wouldn't have had all these steps happen had um she hadn't believed me believed in me and helped me so that was um that was a big thing for me so that's pretty much where my career is at now
1: thanks jim and reach you know the second i entered 3cr you were known as the 3cr legend so a <laughs> <3CR laughs> legend wow i yeah.
5: love that for me that's like probably my proudest title um so, yes, my name is Areej. I'm currently um, on the stolen lands of the Boomerang peoples at the moment here in Melbourne. And I guess my media experience is completely obsessed with community radio. So, I was 17 years old when my mum signed me. I think mean, she was just really exhausted by me being at home after year 12. But she signed me up to this like ethnic youth broadcasting like training over school holidays and she was like go just go do something with yourself so I went and I did it and it was this very kind of interesting interesting program in the sense that I just met a whole bunch of young people of color um and also I was just introduced to all of this different radio stuff so we were moved around all different community and um, we were at the SBS and ABC um and that was kind of my first introduction not necessarily to you know, working in radio, but my introduction to like building some social capacity and thinking that this is a space where people might even consider my existence, right? It was like that, like it was that kind of elementary was my understanding at 17 years old. Um, and so I stuck, stuck it out. Like I started, we did, I did a show on sin. Um, when I was 17 to 18. Then I started university. I studied a Bachelor of Arts and decided to major in journalism. Um, and then when I was 18 years old, I got a job at 3CR, like a paid job. I could quit my job at Bonds, which was really great. Um, and I was working uh three days a week, 15 hours a week, but it was like I did it as three days because I was at uni. And my job title was... Um, current affairs content producer and the purpose of this project that 3CR created was because the breakfast shows, not as they are now now, it's like super beautiful and diverse, but in 2011 I think, um, 2012 possibly, they were not as diverse I would say. And so not just in terms of racial diversity but also in age and so I literally was paid and they got funding from somewhere to pay me 15 hours a week to um, come up with three... 10 minute segments for three different shows interviewing young people of colour. That was literally my J-O-B. And so at the same time I was studying university um, and what was really important, I guess, for me was that my learning and what I was learning at 3CR uh, versus what I was learning at university was like polar opposites. My experiences, like, I'm sure that everyone in the breakfast team or all the current affairs crew at 3CR know Gab Reed and probably like, I love and I'm obsessed with Gabriel but that, you know, this person was really instrumental in my learning about what objectivity is and subjectivity is. I remember one day I was like, well, at university they told me that we have to be objective. She's like, it's not real. Like, that's just... (laughs) It's fake. That's what they tell you at uni to kind of just like get you in. They, you know, and that was a really kind of eye opening experience for me. Um, and so I have been, I used to present women on the line. I, um, finished that role. I've done lots of training. Um, I worked at the ABC for two years. I left at the end of last year as a producer on Radio National um and that's kind of my only mainstream media experience um and I currently present a show on Triple R as well I feel like this is like all Triple R crew um called The Wrap I've been doing that for the last couple of years as well as you know other media stuff um in relation to podcasts so I have a podcast network with FAQ and Easy Roberts Orr and we try and you know ensure that our podcasting sector in this country isn't all commercial media and ABC dominated because that's pretty much what it is um, and that's the work that I do um, in the media that's all.
1: Yeah and Areej you also teach media and communications at a tertiary level. Yeah. What does your teaching practice look like as a black woman educating media students?
5: Yeah so it's interesting because I left the ABC at the end of last year for various reasons but um, the kind of big realization that I had was I don't think that I can get paid doing radio in this country as a profession, um, while also kind of maintaining my sanity, to be honest with you, and a strong sense of self. And that's just me. There's a lot of people of color out there, black people, indigenous people, whoever it might be, who actually do have that capacity. I, I, at this stage in 2020, don't have the capacity. I didn't in 2019 and nor did I in 2018. Um, and so I've been teaching at university. you have been teaching podcasting um, but also media and communications and so not necessarily journalism um, at the University of Melbourne and at Monash briefly for quite a few years now. And it's interesting because my class makeup is mostly um, like, young white people um, and then some international students. And there are a few, like, uh, local students who are people of colour. I've had a few Indigenous students, a few African, South Asian, Eastern, like whoever it might be. And I think it's really difficult to prepare people, particularly young people of colour, for a job in the media as, like, a black woman in Australia, as also someone who's, like, escaped mainstream media actively. Um, without being completely honest with them. So even this media diversity report, for a lot of my students, it was, like, you know, obvious, right? They're media and communication students. They know it. But I think for some of the students it was a moment where they had to kind of pause and question whether this is something that they wanted to do. Um, and that is the experience not of my white students. And so it is actually quite difficult sometimes to, like, it, you know, help students become excited about this world, um, knowing that there's like two of them in the cohort who um, will probably really struggle. But I'm also conscious of the fact that they don't really have teachers of colour or tutors of colour or whatever that might be or lecturers of colour or whoever. And so I'm also conscious of the fact that the very few I mean, I, I love all my students, but the very few who might get something more than just a regular classroom experience with me. I hope that it's like better than my university experience
1: is what I'll say, yeah. That's really nice, that's beautiful <laughs> and talking about, I mean you brought up that um, you know the idea that question uh, that some students question if this is something that we want to do I've got a question for you Osman about that, you know you write a lot about race and you know quite frankly and I imagine a lot of backlash to that would be quite um, angry and possibly violent do you think the I guess Lack of safety is one of the major issues that prevent this kind of diversity in the space.
3: It's a, it's a really good question. I, I think I think it's become a, an increasingly big part of the focus, and I think there's been a couple of really high-profile situations that have um, made safety and and the experiences of journalists from non-white backgrounds something that younger people that I speak to think about a lot more. And and I think there's a bunch of factors. But to answer your question directly, a real tipping point for me that I noticed, both myself but in conversations I was happy having, was what happened to Yasmin Abdul Majid when she was at the ABC. And that was less an issue of of personal safety, though you know, she herself has been the victim of, of many, many, many death threats. But it was a sense of there are so few high profile people of colour, right, in the Australian media landscape. Like, there's barely any. And, and when, you, when you're talking about Muslim people in particular, the, the, it's like a small pool. And there was a period where it was Waleed and, and, and Yasmin. Um, and when the ABC basically made a decision that due to political pressure it was going to sever its relationship with her, that was a signal that was sent to people like us that, you might think you belong here, you might even get a job there, but if you ever want to express who you are, rather than try and fit into a white mold and be as safe as possible, you, you will be let go and thrown to the wolves as soon as possible. And that was, that was a tipping point, I think, for a lot of people. And I think, you know, what Ariz was saying, those experiences that so many of us have in the mainstream media are common and, and they're not safe environments for us. And then I think that the sort of the next phase, and I think, you know certain demographics of people experience the the kind of hard edge of this job because journal, journalism has not always been a public facing Thing. You know, you write a story that's consumed by the public, but you as an individual very rarely uh, have been a public figure, unless you're, like, right up there. But, you know, the advent of the social media and encouragement that that organisations give to their staff to be out there on social, because that's where you will represent the brand. It's where you will, you know, find stories, it's how you get your story out there. That's made individual journalists much more... Um, you know, active participants in this, in this conversation. And for a lot of them, it's helped them get jobs. And I'm certainly one of those people, you know, like I got writing gigs when I was freelancing just by tweeting about stuff, whether that was television shows or what was happening in politics. But, th- but then when you work for a media organization, you know, and, and your profile grows and you write things. And if you write about certain topics, um, you know, if you're, if you're a woman who writes about issues around domestic violence and and the family law system, you will receive threats for doing that. Um, sometimes if you're a woman who writes about the Star Wars films, you'll receive threats for that as well. If you're a person of colour, you can write about anything and you'll receive threats. If you're a person of colour who writes about race and white supremacy, the level of threats are amplified even further. And I think... People see that like, you know, people speak to me and say they see what happens to me and others like me and it scares them from the industry and it scares them from wanting to speak up. And I find that really distressing and I don't really have an answer for that. But I think the thing is ultimately if you work for an organization, the organization that benefits from your work. your labour it's ultimately their responsibility to protect you Mm -hmm. and i think the problem that we've got and this is why that relates to the yasmin situation i think is that organizations don't acknowledge that they want to say they've gone from saying we don't we don't we don't want you to saying we want you because you look good and you tick a box for us and it won't make us look bad in a media diversity report but don't actually inhibit you know any of the cultural values that you come from Mm -hmm. but the phase we need to get to is we're allowed to be who we are and we do the work that we do. We're treated the same as everyone else. And when we attract unnecessary attention, you defend us as vociferously as you would defend one of your high-profile white staff members. Um, sorry if I kind of went a little bit off track, but hopefully that answers your question.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the, the idea of fitting into a mould that was not set up for you from the beginning I think is something that everyone can resonate with. Mm. On the topic of that, Madeline, I have a question for you. Um, indigenous news organisations like NITV, Indigenous X, 98.9 FM in Brisbane, they all already do amazing work with community in a very culturally safe and appropriate way. And um, the recent article that journalist Amy McCreyer wrote um, for Indigenous X talks about the importance of preserving such organisations and states, um, this is a quote from the article, which is really good, and it's a long one, the challenge should not be working should not be in working within white structures, but in building up a powerful black media. What do we need to be able to build up that sort of powerful black media to stand on its own?
2: Yeah, I think so in that regard, I think that NITV does actually play, play a really um, good role in getting black journalists in and training them up and you know, using the resources of a bigger company, but in a culturally safe environment. You know, for the most part, to to get, to enable those journalists, black journalists, to go out there and be able to do those things. Um, obviously, if it wasn't for NITV, I wouldn't be able to. Like, I went freelance earlier this year, a few months ago, and since then, I've been like doing great. And if it wasn't for them, I wouldn't have had been able to build my profile in that way. Um, I wouldn't have been able to get that experience that I needed to be able to be, you know, a like a broadcaster on TV or on radio with Oz. I've got to give you a plug because she gave (laughs) gave our show one before. Um, (laughs) Yeah, so I think in that sense, that's a really good way. Um, But also just putting – it's kind of – I guess it's kind of hard because when we – like, and I've thought about, you know, starting something myself, and I'm like, how do I do that? You know, you need to have people who are willing to invest in it um, in ter- well, financially for one, and also just in terms of their time and actually caring about what black media has to say, um, and realizing that that's important as well. Um, and I think, ma- you know, mainstream, mainstream organizations can support black media from the outside by, um, by amplifying voices and stuff like that as well.
1: Mm, yeah. Thank you. And Jim, um, Circling back to your introduction about working for Domain, Mm. I'm very well acquainted with Domain because I'm a renter. But (laughs) I, you know, when I was researching it, I found out that they had the news section, and you know, the stuff that you write for it for it is so great. Is that a a decision that you made on purpose to work for Domain?
4: No, no, not at all. Um, So it was 100% a decision to get out of Channel Seven. it was a decision I sort of made because I realised that Channel 7 just wasn't really a place for me. Um, I was watching other people get promoted ahead of me. Um, you know, like I wasn't necessarily... I didn't feel like it had anything to do with, um, you know, uh, being an African-Australian. I I just, you know, was like, oh, they're not going to give me a go. And I looked at what they were doing in Brisbane. I was like, this isn't for me. i got to find... My, like, you know, I need to find a different way out of this. Um, so I ended up at Domain because... I just wanted it out. And this is something that I think you, you may have been intending to ask me, but um, at Domain, I've found it to be an incredibly safe space. Um, you know, it's uh, my, um, you know, two of the people in, uh, management, tro- in management roles are gay. Um, we have four people of color in our, um, in our team. It's mostly women. Um, it's, it's a wonderful, like a wonderfully diverse place. I don't have to worry about going into work there and, uh, you know, worrying about whether or not someone's going to write a story, uh, that's, um, you know, like, uh, what's the word? Something like, uh, what channel seven does regularly, um, or did regularly at least in 2018 with, um, demonizing African gangs. Um, it wasn't something, um, it isn't something I've ever really worried about and, um, and times that, um, my, my white colleagues have written, um, have written, uh, what's the word, stories about, you know, African Australians and their experiences in Australia and in the housing market. And I've been incredibly, incredibly impressed by how they, um, how they've chosen to cover them.
1: That's really good to hear. I mean, mm. everyone joined domain. By the
4: thing, <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, these, these places, these spaces do exist. Uh, it's just that I think it has been easier for us to be a safer place for people like me um, and, you know, journalists and aspiring journalists like me as well, because, uh, it's a small team um, and we're also operating with a, a degree of independence from other newsrooms. So we don't necessarily have to worry about what, um not to say that the age would have any issues with this, but we don't need to worry about what the age would would say about our hiring processes or anything like that. It's all a, a very just a, a an insular sort of thing and it's allowed it to be a, a very, very safe place for minorities, I think.
1: Mm, And escaping a workplace is an experience I think most of us can identify with. So (laughs) thank you for being very relatable. Um, This is a general question for anyone really. So this is something we talked about uh, just at the beginning of this event, about how the lack of diversity is framed as a personal failing. You know, you're not applying enough or you don't have the necessary skills and it sort of ignores every other circumstance. How can we consider – I mean, yeah, the question is, how do we make people apply or how can workplaces be safe enough that people will apply? Um Arete?
5: I was, like, just waiting to listen to all these insightful comments. It's really, like, I just recognize I'm probably not the right person to answer a question like this because I packed my stuff and I left, right? Like, I, I really did. I took my bag and my – um, fake little hot desk at the ABC and I walked out because I, you know, for many reasons but one big reason was because I decided actually I don't think I can work in this workplace where there really aren't that many of us and it's you know, so I'm probably not the right person but I would say um, when it comes to like diversifying the media, I think that like this media diversity report is great, there have been lots of reports before it, we all kind of know, right, like I don't think that a report like that is for us um, necessarily. But I think one thing that possibly um, is lost in some of the discourse about media diversity is that having like enough people of colour or representation, you know, the representation of the Australian like population or whatever, that's not like the ultimate goal. You know what I mean? That's the first step. That can't it can't be the last step because that doesn't actually make sense. Like Jim was saying talking about African gangs and that being covered in all of these spaces it's like yeah that's amazing but there are so many people who are not African who you know have worked in newsrooms and who have covered the stories of my community and have completely butchered them and that that's not just because they're people of color or they're of a minority background or whatever it doesn't actually mean that they're going to do a good job nor does it mean Africans who work in that space are going to necessarily do a do a good job right it's about what that system is what that what that institution is, what it's meant to be. Um, And also I think one really important point that was made by Osman is that your workplace has to fight for you by nature of your existence in this white supremacist society that we live in, right? And, like, I'm not trying to go all that way. I mean, we're on 3C, I can say whatever I want. But, like, white supremacy is something that people don't like to talk about, but it's something that, you know, working at the ABC we did talk about post- um, what went down in New Zealand and that was a conversation about how do we cover white supremacist terrorism in in this workplace and that genuinely was a conversation that was had between staff and whatever um, but then I think about like an institution that is predominantly white like what could it be but one that is white supremacist and so it then becomes quite confusing when we do have these conversations and what is considered Neutral and whiteness being considered neutral within the context of institutions like the ABC or, you know, in some context, the SBS and other, other media institutions. So in terms of like, who's like, should, how do we get people to apply? I don't necessarily know how to convince someone to apply for a job that I left is the point that I'm going to make. So that's not a yeah. productive answer, but that's all I can say.
2: Mm-hmm. Um I have something to say about this too. So I, I've said this like, you know, for ages. Uh we need to have people in positions of power who are people of colour. Um and especially I guess for black journalists to have um, you know, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander managers that we can go to to feel safe. Um or even like we talked about it at NITV. I mean NITV has um they're really good and it was great to have managers who were also black and we talked about, you know, even having an elder in residence to make it even more culturally safe for staff who just wanted to go sit down and have a yarn with an elder um, over anything at work. It could have been like a story we're working on that was difficult for us um, or just to like, you know, something that went down at work. Um And I think that's really important. And obviously, you no know, workplaces have that. So people. I know black journalists from other organisations who will come to me or come to one of my friends, like who's also a journalist or something, to talk about something that happened in their workplace. But there's nothing you can really do about it um, being on the outside except to give them advice on how to deal with it. And that's really difficult. So I think having those people um, in positions of power and management and who can advise um, other managers what, you know, what is culturally appropriate and not appropriate is really important. Um, we've had this, you know, at, at SBS, I'm sure everyone saw what went down with a few of our sex employees talking about our experiences um, going through the SBS side of things. So. The Media Diversity Report didn't actually include NITV in its report because, um, you know, SBS as a big organization often hides behind their numbers for NITV saying, you know, we have this many Indigenous employees. But then when you look at their actual newsroom, they have, I don't think they have any at the moment. Oh, yes, they have one as far as I know, um, who is Indigenous and that's fine. But well, it's not fine. But <laughs> looking at their management structure, someone quickly pointed out on Twitter that all of their you know, top managers are all white, And that actually hasn't changed. They had the opportunity to change that. Their, a bunch of their journalists wrote a letter with the MEAA to ask SBS to, you know, appoint, so Jim Carroll was leave, is leaving, and to appoint someone, a person of colour to his position, which was, I think was managing director or something like that, managing editor or something. Um, and they had that opportunity to do that, and they didn't. They hired yet another you know, white woman into that position, which um, you know is it's 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 about listening, I think, more than and putting those people in positions where they have authority.
4: I have something to add on that as well. I think, um, yeah, like hiring, like having the hiring managers as being people of color, I think is important because, um, you know, there may there may be. <laughs> unconscious bias uh, that people aren't aware of um, when they're hiring people. So hiring, um, you know, not just the people who hire the journalists, but also the people who hire them should uh, be, rep- there should be some representation there as well, I think would um, probably help that. Um, another thing I will add, which is totally different from that is that if they want people of colour to apply for roles, they should stop doing racist things. Like, I think that is probably one of the, the key things that needs to be addressed in the Australian media is stop doing racist things. I have made a, a conscious choice to not work for um, News Corp. I flat out refuse, like I, I would, would never work for it, I couldn't honestly say like live with myself if I was even cleaning the toilets for them um, I would also not work at Channel 7 anymore because of um, the African gangs coverage and the, the breathlessness with which they pursued that and every time I see something um, uh, in other parts of the media, um, I tend to think uh, it's you know it's it's like another it's like I make a note of it. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, can I can I feel safe in this workplace? Because will I be um, will I watch someone put together a racist uh, you know news package? Um, we saw it with the Brisbane newsroom, um, which number I will not say because I think it could get me into trouble. But we we watched them do that. Um, you know, write a racist story about Aboriginal people. Um, they also did one about um, Black Lives Matter as well a few weeks later. And as far as I understand, uh, the the feeling in these newsrooms is not, oh, my God, we, um, we screw this up. We, you know, we've caused like a, you know, this is a, a bit of a faux pas. They're like, don't we have a point? Like, can't we say this? Aren't we allowed to? And I think that is something that, um, you know, I am just no longer willing to go into. I mean, um, I spent a lot of my younger years making excuses for Australian racism, and um, I'm just not prepared to do that anymore. And I would never apply for a place unless they actually, um, you know, either apologise, rectified, stopped doing racist things. You know, that's, these are just, you know, things that I consider when I'm looking to make an application. I'm sure other people would feel the same as well.
1: Mm. And I guess, yeah, I mean, the sort of consequence of that, because I'm not a journalist in in the sense that I don't use that to pay my rent, but, you know, in my field when I look at places, when I start taking off places that have been, you know, um, told to be racist or they have some sort of a weird thing going on, it narrows the pool of places I can actually apply to, which then, you know, obviously affects the diversity of these places. So And I really enjoyed your article um, on Crikey about, you know, headlines, being racist as well. Um, so, yeah, great job. Osman, I want to talk to you about the um, the coverage around what happened in, in Christchurch that I think Areej brought up just then. How does it feel being trotted out as the, the spokesperson for these sorts of things every time something like this happens?
3: It's, it's funny, right, because there's two sides to that. On, on one hand, you're like, uh, maybe I'll just tell you a story, right? So... When you're when you're one of like less than five Muslim journalists at the ABC, um, and something like that happens, it's very very interesting because you you sort of simultaneously see people grapple with this idea of like. I kind of feel like in 2019, I should be asking you to say something about this, right? Can you, like, write an opinion for how this makes you feel? Or can you put me in touch with people in your community who can talk about this for me? Uh, do you know anyone in in Christchurch who I could speak to, right, that that they want to they, – they see the benefits in that diversity? But then on the other hand, when it comes to actually doing the kind of, like, hard-nosed reporting – um, you can't do that. You have a vested interest in it. And you know, and when Arisha was talking about the conversations that happened after Christchurch at the ABC, no, so every single reporter that every Australian news outlet sent to Christchurch was was white. Um, and that's relevant for two reasons. One, it's bad journalism um, because you're talking about a group of people, a community, and and victims and survivors who are overwhelmingly migrants who come from. South Asia, from the Middle East, from, from, from African countries. Sending Jim Smith, uh, sorry, no offense, Jim, I just picked a random white name. Um, to, to go and try and make connections to these people and get them to talk to you is the stupidest thing you could possibly do, right? But in these, in these discussions that we had at the ABC afterwards that were reflecting on, you know, decisions made by the ABC that a lot of the staff at the organization or people of color and a lot of the Muslim staff thought were bad decisions. One former senior, really, really senior, really well-known foreign correspondent said, well, why would we send Muslims uh, to cover Christchurch? Um, you know, this is a story that you have skin in the game on, right? And, and it goes to that question, you know, of like objectivity, subjectivity. But this guy couldn't get his head around the fact that, like, this is a white supremacist terrorist. You're white. You have skin in the game. You know, not not that you're pro-terrorist, but this is not a story and, and it's this ongoing question of neutrality. And in all these organisations, neutrality is equated to whiteness and anything outside of that is is seen as having a bias. And I found it really frustrating. I, actually, it's so interesting hearing you talk about this story because it's not often that you hear someone who has experiences that chime so much with you at an organisation like that. So it's actually kind of cathartic, uh, sort of like free therapy. I'm hearing you say this stuff. But but the issue, I, I mean, I guess to, to tie this off on what everyone else was saying earlier, I feel like there's two different issues in the Australian media landscape when it comes to this. Like one is, yes, the lack of diversity. Like if we had more Muslim journalists, would we have better storytelling and more nuanced analysis of all of these issues of post-Christchurch white uh, supremacy? That's a pro- probably, I think we probably would. And I think that in and of itself is a good thing. But is that the main reason why the Australian media landscape is cooked, um, and why there's such a tendency to run, you know, racialized coverage of stories? I don't think so. I don't think news editors are sitting around being like, "Well, if there was a black guy here or a Muslim guy here, we probably wouldn't run this line that was outrageously racist and basically pro-one nation." I think that the problem is much deeper than that, and I think there's a risk in the diversity of conversation. And I don't think anyone on this panel is, you know, is playing into this, but I think there's a risk of you know, not letting us be used as window dressing and and not letting us be seen as, all the problem's solved because what everyone said, the senior managers, the editors, the people that run the newspapers, the people that own the newspapers, Mm -hmm. they have ideological worldviews and no amount of diversity in a newsroom will change that. So, yes, I want the newsrooms to be more diverse because I want those biases to be unpacked, but that in and of itself is not going to dismantle the racist structures that, that, that the news media environment in Australia operates within.
2: Mm, absolutely. Can I just add something to that? So the other thing that, like, what Oz was just saying is, um, you know, you can employ abori- more Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. That's, I'm just speaking from my experience, and I'm sure it must be similar for you guys, um, kind of what you were saying at the start, Oz. Um, but, you know, you have people coming to you and quest- like, with questions all the time, like, and then you're, you know, the voice of everyone in your community telling them what the community wants when you can't, like it's just, it's only your opinion.
1: Hmm, absolutely. Uh,
3: there's one story on that, like a workplace I work where I was the one non-white person, one of the video producers, like, hey, I've just done this sketch video and, um, and, and, and it's about Rosa Parks, like can you watch it and tell me if it's racist? I'm like bro, what do I, I mean, what do I know about whether it's right? Like, you know, like you should be able to know that. It's not on me. Yeah, anyway, it's just well, I'm sure that stuff happens to all of you guys.
1: Thank you for sharing that story. I cannot roll my eyes any harder. Um, And before the next question, just a reminder that um, attendees can pop some questions in the Q&A function at the the bottom of the screen. Um, So just following on from that, Osman and Madeline, I know you did a lot of incredible work around the coverage of Auntie Tanya Day's um, inquest. When you're writing about something this personal and... I would say traumatic, uh, and I think I know the answer to this. But do you get any support after for you know debriefing and, and that sort of thing?
2: Um, so I guess that, yeah, like 10-year-day inquest for me was really, it was. Um, I found that the community that rallied the support around the family also kind of rallied around me as a journalist because, um, you know, I made. Sure that we were there every single day of the inquest. No other media outlet did that. And that says a lot too about, but I'm not, I'm not going to go into it. <laughs> Just, um, so going there every day and like even, you know, at lunchtime, if all the mob was sitting down and eating, they'd be like, Oh, you know, we've got all this food. Have some food with us and stuff. Um, and I guess like as a, as a black woman that, you know, obviously enables you to tell a better story because you're actually with the family all the time. And, um, as probably everyone knows, um, I'm like friends with the family, so it was it was good in that sense. Um, but and I guess that was the support that we got. So April, um, April Anitanya's daughter and I, like we went out to the jabberung trees one afternoon and hung out there and just like you know connected with country and you know was just around mob and we had like a, a fire and we we're just sitting around talking and yarning and debriefing and even just talking about stuff that had nothing to do with the inquest and that stuff's really important. Um, in terms of work, like, yes, I guess there's people that, you know, you have on call that you can ring and talk to whenever you want. But for me, I find, and I, I guess in the community of being black journalists, like we we go to work and we report on these things and then we go home and we have the same stuff that we have to deal with at home or similar issues and that can be really draining. Um, so it's really important that we do all talk to each other about everything that happens um, in that sense. So I think that support network is probably the best one. Um, I did actually go and see a um, psychologist after because I wasn't, you know, feeling great, maybe a few months later, and I had a really bad experience with them, which made it worse. It was just like, you know, what would she say? Why don't you go down to the, um, you know, the Aboriginal part of the river and talk to your people? <laughs> and I was like, okay. Thanks. Um, (laughs) So I I find that the the mainstream ways of dealing with stuff aren't necessarily helpful to black journalists. Um, The better way for me to deal with things is to talk to my own community and have that support from also from black journalists.
1: Mm, Yeah, I mean, I guess the sense of community is what attracts a lot of people to places like 3CI, you know, community radio first, and then you sort of make your way from there. And so you've all done community radio, which is great. And what kind of lessons do you take from community radio that you think can be applied to mainstream media, Jim?
4: Yeah, I think um, one of the major things about community radio is it's um, because the maybe not the barrier to entry is lower. Um, maybe it's more that the the barrier to entry is sort of being a part of the community. I think, and I think that's something that is um, you know really important for sort of taking uh you know i guess improving diversity or you know creating pathways for people like us to get into um into the media um one thing i i really think about diversity is that it's um or the lack of diversity i guess is that it's not really a reflection of like uh the population it's a reflection of power and those who hold power and i think it's pretty obvious um, where power lies in australia um particularly if you look at our parliament um so that's why community radio is a, a really good pathway and that's because it actually reflects our communities, um, not so much the people who uh, pay donations or, you know, uh, live in the bush.
1: Mm. And I've um, hiked you out as the 3CR legend, so I'm interested in your thoughts.
5: Oh, I really do love that title. I actually love it so much. Um, it's it's complicated, right? Because community radio is a legitimate sector in and of itself, and it's one that is probably the biggest media sector in this in this country. It is super dynamic. It's really vibrant. It is accessible to some extent, you know, not completely accessible. Um, we are in Australia after all, um, and it is it's lots of stuff, but the kind of main thing about community radio is that it is unpaid work right um and so a thing that's kind of really difficult with community radio is that it in one way it becomes like a stepping stone for people who then need to pay their rent right which is important and you want to continue to do your um media stuff or you want to keep being a journalist as a as a job um, but then it can also in some ways become a um a space where it's people who have capacity to um volunteer time to this specific thing right and the complicated thing for me um about the media sector in this country is that there is a really there really isn't a middle ground i don't think between i don't think we have a vibrant independent media seen, unfortunately, right? There are some great independent media outlets out there, but it's not um, it's not huge where, you know, this country's not that big, population's not that big. Um, and so media ownership concentration is really, really high. And so what ends up happening is that there's a few different institutions that you can work for um, without selling your soul, and there's not that many jobs. Um, but your heart is probably at most ease within the community radio sector but that's not the work that's going to pay your bills. And so you, you, there is kind of like a little bit of a kind of push and pull about that that can be really, really difficult. But I think the beauty of community radio is in the fact that you don't necessarily get paid and that you're there for a reason that is beyond just social capital, that is beyond just like, um, you know, being a stepping stone. Like if you are persistent within the community radio sector, you learn so much. One thing that I think um, mainstream media can learn from community radio is um, the real kind of, particularly for me, 3CR um, and Triple R are where I've spent a lot of my time. But the real kind of active, intentional um, work of seeking out members of the community as guests right? That is like a really big thing that is really um, prioritised within community radio. We don't go to politicians necessarily to ask their opinions about policy. We go to the people who might um, actually be impacted by it. And that is like mandated. Whereas others, other media institutions don't do that. And maybe because they need to be the fourth estate or whatever. But I think maybe they just don't do it enough At all. And what ends up happening when you work in mainstream media and have also been or continue to be part of community radio is that you become that one person, which is me, who will be able to like rally, not just like Africans, they'll be like, oh, we probably need a perspective from like a young Aboriginal artist. A regional know someone. And then you, you know, and then it becomes those networks that you build within community radio, um, are expected to come within the mainstream media space. But then the, the safe, the safety isn't there. So that is also a bit of like a complicated feeling that comes out of it. Um, but yeah, that's all I have to say.
1: Yeah, absolutely. We've got lots of questions coming in from audience, so we might jump into those unless anyone has any last thoughts about how great Community Radio – okay, all right. Um, the first question from an audience member is, so far your panellists seem – like native English speakers, what's your take on the role, challenges, and opportunities for non native English speakers? And the experiences are different from native speakers for a number of social cultural reasons. Anyone can answer that.
4: I can, um, I'll start. Um, working for Channel 7, um, even as a native English speaker, um, I had to spend a lot of time redoing. Uh, voiceovers um i think it's it is incredibly challenging and i think until people um are willing to put in the extra work to actually you know support people who are not native um, english speakers Um it's just not going to be a safe space in places like television because there is so much pressure and so much time um you know that goes into it um to to make it like seem perfect and i think um like part of the issue is, is that we hold up um, whiteness or, you know, australian or or um, being, you know, prim and proper and well-spoken as like a gold standard. And even saying well-spoken is like a, you know, it's, kind of wrong because like if you, if English is your second language, um, you know, you speak it how you speak it and that's, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, I think, um, what needs to change there for, you know, for it to be easier is, is management. Like unless the management, um, and the people who edit the stories or, you know, um, you know, make the choices about what pronunciation is acceptable, um, you know, either, um, have, change their views or are a person of colour and, you know, can um, appreciate that different people speak in different ways. Uh, there is just no chance that will happen. I mean, like one time I actually had to sit in um, the booth for probably 45 minutes trying to say HMAS. I kept saying HMAS um, and my my uh my producer at the time just like she was losing her mind and like you know over something that tiny like if you're not a native english speaker like it's it's just not safe
1: honestly what's the right way i say h2 then all
4: right oh it's h yeah it's not h it's h without the h huh at the start it's ridiculous but now every time i hear someone say h because of that 45 minutes in the booth i like i get like war flashbacks it's like it's terrible
3: yeah, no. That, the, the accent and language stuff is a really important question because, you know, the, we can all be from diverse backgrounds, but there's obviously different levels of, you know, what, 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 how that, how that impacts you. And it's worth noting that the media is just one Workplace environment where coming from a non-anglo background impacts you. you know, right? Study after study has shown that if you have a name that is not anglo, you're less likely to get callbacks. And in the media industry, when you are asked to present physically L through your voice, then people's own bi And I'm not even going to call them subconscious biases because I don't really believe in that term. It's like people aren't subconsciously racist; they're just racist. They might not. They might not be willing to accept that but that's different to it being something subconscious. Um, but, yeah, this idea of, like, you know, the H&H thing is such a rooted in, like, real classes stuff before you even bring in racial diversity. But you think about the ABC, right? You will hear Scottish accents, Irish accents, American accents, Canadian accents. You will never hear an Indian accent or an accent from someone from East Asia, even though there are orders of magnitude, more of those people in the community paying taxes to the ABC than people wandering around with Scottish accents, you know. But it just won't happen. And that is, again, just 100% racism. That doesn't help the questioner, unfortunately. Like, what do you do about that? I'm sorry. um, You know, I don't think there's any sort of, like, trick to, to get around that. But it's, as Jim said, we need to blast these, you know, crooked managers who who have these racist views out of there. Yeah.
5: I just want to add really quickly to that. My experience in mainstream media, um, like, I did this, it's okay listen I'm just exposing myself now but whatever we're here so I did this like experiment right which was me particularly in the last kind of year of when I was working at the ABC and the experiment was that I would try my best to always have at least one person of color in the story that I was producing didn't matter the content like sometimes they'd give you a book or something and so you have to interview the author so it wasn't you know possible but like whatever the story was, whether it's an academic, because you still kind of have to align with the values of Radio National or the ABC or whatever. Um, And that requires a lot more work, of course, because the people who put their hands up or the people that are put forward for certain interviews and stuff um, are not going to be people of colour necessarily. Um, And so there was one day when, you know, I had this, like, really awesome, you know, like... I think they were an academic, and they were great, and they were they they had all the knowledge base, and everything was great. Um, but they spoke with a non-native English, whatever that is, right? English accent, whatever. Um, and it wasn't like the kind of fear that I saw in the face of like my colleagues wasn't necessarily like, oh, you know, I wonder if this is going to be okay or whatever. It was more like the listeners won't understand, like the problem isn't, it's the listeners, the listeners won't understand, the listeners can't understand. And that was like a really genuine fear. And I was like, what are you talking about, listeners? I just did a 45-minute pre-interview with this person. The listeners are going to understand. I understood everything they were saying. And so then that kind of made me think about like often what happens, and this is the question about gatekeeping, right, Often what happens is the people who work in these institutions, whether they're an executive producer or middle management or whoever it might be, or a producer, right, they get to make decisions on behalf of the citizens or whatever, the people who live in this country, right? They make a decision that the listeners won't understand what this person is saying. And the listeners, we don't know whether the listeners will understand. It's very likely that they'll be absolutely fine. But the problem is the listeners are not given the opportunity to listen to a variety of accents. And that's probably why you think they won't understand. The fact that you might not be able to understand doesn't mean that my dad isn't going to be able to understand what this East African accent is through um, the radio. My dad listens to the ABC or whatever it is. And so for me, it's like, I don't know what we can do to change the game. I always wonder, like, I find myself in these institutions and working at, you know, the University of Melbourne or whatever, and I just wonder, like, what would my mum's lived experience in this workplace be compared to mine? Mm-hmm. And it definitely wouldn't be the same. And so the privileges that we hold with the ability to articulate ourselves and have this, like, bicultural competency where we live in these two different worlds mm-hmm. um, and we can perform in both worlds is a really significant privilege and I think it's a really important question and, and that's the way that it's handled in mainstream media well, from from my perspective anyway. Mm-hmm. And, and Theresa has shows that are not in English, right? Specific like Somali language shows and Eritrean language shows. There's not that many people who understand like in Australia that necessarily understand those languages specifically, let alone those and and yet this community radio station will actively privilege and support these people to speak to their people.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. and Like the idea of having to code switch um, all the time as well, something uh, most people are aware of. Um, the next question that we have um, from Ben, um, who says they're a public servant and while we have a long way to go, we at least have formal unconscious bias training in the public service uh, in industry uh, amongst other diversity programs. Do media organizations conduct any training on bias? Do they? Does anyone know?
2: No, <laughs> no, I don't. I don't believe. Well, you know, from my experience, I don't believe that they do. Um, I think in in the general sense of bias, we know what it is, but in terms of unconscious bias, I don't think so. Um, and I think, obviously, the answer to that is to appoint people into positions where they can be able to explain that to you. But also, I don't know, but not not expect them to explain it to you either. Mm-hmm.
1: I think it's a short answer to this question. No, they do not. <laughs> the next question we have is, what advice do you have for those who may be navigating similar problems, like racism, tokenism, toxic behaviour within their workplaces? How do you know if you should go or stay? And what helped you make that decision? And what would you say to people who fear backlash for speaking up? Those are four questions in one question, but sure. Uh, does anyone want to answer that? I'm just going to have to point at people. Osman?
3: Sure um it it is hard because there's not an obvious answer to it, right? like I think we've all been sharing our stories, and like I mentioned before a- Areege, talking about her experiences that's the first time I've really heard someone that I can connect with um you know like like I have found support not all the time I have found support from from my union in the media industry that's the m e w a for all sorts of workplace issues but let's be honest, unions like any other institution in Australia have they're blind spots when it comes to, to race as well. And so, you know, I was the the first and only member of my house committee at the ABC in Sydney, which is kind of like the group of union delegates who, who help um, members who, who wasn't white. So I didn't have, um, I, I didn't have like a, a union mentor or, or someone that I could go and speak to who was not white that there, there, there's informal networks. I guess that's kind of been established. Like, I don't know about the rest of you, but I'm in like, Three or four different group chats for, um, for people in the industry who aren't white where we kind of share stories and, you know, tell people who to watch out for. I often sometimes, and I don't mind this at all, like I hate random DMs from anyone except for non-white people who like have questions about how to like manage a situation or get ahead or just want to bounce an idea off me and look that I'm obviously not, like, I'm not an industrial relations officer. I can't, you know, fix every issue, but I've gotten a lot of help from people who are more experienced than me in the industry and I've had more success talking to them than any formal channel or any formal avenue for workplace resolution. So, and I'm pretty sure most of us are pretty like, supportive of that sort of stuff like i know that that manny and Jim have done that stuff and reach teachers people and i'm sure deals with stuff like this a lot if so you in particular if you want some advice message one of us message me if you want and until we have like you know unless until we run shit basically i think the informal networks are the the way to go
1: Mm. thank you The next question is about working in a white-dominated media industry. Um, The question is, how do you balance self-preservation with the desire to actively push for change within a system? Jim, do you want to take that one?
4: Yeah, sure, I'd love to. Um, Yeah, (laughs) I'd love to answer the question to say I don't really know um, I think it's something that you need to check in with yourself um, you know, constantly to see how you're feeling. Um, you know, it's not every day that you're going to have someone say something like totally messed up to you. It's not every day you're going to get a little microaggression. Um, you know, so it can be very tolerable um most of the time, I would think. Um but it's uh, similar to how you exist in a in a white dominated society. You know, you need to, you know, pick your battles and, and choose when you think you can make a difference and, and, you know, actually, um, you know, affect change. Um, one time that I, you know, I feel very proud of affecting change was, um, there was a, when the, uh, remember the young LNP from the Gold Coast? They were, um, they did that video where, um, one of the, the people there, one of the people they interviewed says, oh, I'm a bit of a lefty myself, but you know, said something really, really racist about, um, indigenous people, right? Um, the headline on the Brisbane Times said, um, you know, uh, young LNP in trouble for racist in quotes, um, you know, uh, what's the word, uh, racist uh you know video or remarks or whatever it is and you know the fact that it was in quotes really set me off and I like I picked up the phone and I, I called the the website producer um because I used to work in the Brisbane Times so I started in Brisbane Times and I moved down to um to Melbourne to work at the age just I uh, didn't say that before but yeah so I call, I know him well and we're mates and I gave him a call and I said look mate like blind Freddy can see that it's racist you don't need it in the quotes it is obviously racist to say something like that and you know that's a time where i you know effective change and i i felt good about it you know picking every single battle over tiny things like that is just going to wear you out and you need to like you need to make sure that you think you can actually make a difference and it will be well received uh, i think when you uh, when you want to try to actually you know try to affect the change and 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 yeah that's pretty much it
1: Mm, thank you um, and, Osman, I understand that you have to leave now. So thank you so much for joining us this evening. Um, very well, sorry
3: for the sudden getaway, just slight work emergency. Um, but this was so good. Thank you so much, everyone. Enjoy yeah. the rest. It was great. Love the questions. Love you all.
1: See you. Um, the next question is, how can those from minorities create space for themselves in media with paid media jobs shrinking what do you think the future holds and should we be innovating to create space for ourselves? A um, Yeah. Yeah.
5: Uh, yes, I actually think we definitely should be trying to. The thing is um, that takes a lot of work and I think Madeline was saying that before, like she was like, yeah, so I was thinking I'd start one as well, but, you know, it requires, and I think all of us, have, I don't know, um, I don't know about you, Jim, but 100% I have been like, yeah, nah, I'm going to start a media company. Yeah, that's what I'm going to do. And I'm going to hire all of these amazing people. I have, like, two students who would be so good. And I've got this list of people and then we would invite them into the fold and we can create this amazing thing and whatever. It's it's definitely not easy, right? Like, that is the kind of, you know, that's probably the reason why independent media in this country is, is not particularly um, flourishing. Mm-hmm. Um but, what I would say is the fact that there are shrinking jobs within the media industry should not stop someone who actually really does want to be part of this um, industry right like I think that there are ways to get in to this um, if they're difficult and not everyone has not everyone can go into it depending on wherever you want to work but there are ways right it's not impossible at university they tell you that 10% of each student you know 10% of you will get a job in the media the rest of you are going to work in PR like 10% of you if you're like badass community radio people who are have been doing this work for a long time already who have amazing ideas who might have connections who might want to email or message one of us or whatever there are ways that you can enter that system the thing is you have to decide whether it's something that you want to do or if that's the best place for you to, um, like, perform, right, Um, whether you think, actually, I can do all of this. Um, And the other thing, the other kind of point that I would make um, with regards to, like, starting our own stuff, it doesn't have to be big, right? You can, being a freelancer is you being your own, like, um, boss, right? It's a difficult career path, of course, but it is something, right? You're making a statement about, you being the move, like you being the one who moves around and not being beholden to a particular institution or representing a particular institution or whatever. And that's a really big point and a really big step to make. Um, but also you can do smaller things like um, myself, Izzy and Beth started Broadway because we were like, let's just try, you know, podcasting is a thing. Podcasting always been a thing. Um, but let's, try and move this podcasting world away from just being by yourself and it being this very kind of neoliberal thing where you're like this famous podcast host. Um, and then the only kind of alternative is doing a podcast for one of these media institutions. And so we were trying to find a middle ground. And we've got a few podcasts that are coming. I'm working on something with someone who's awesome and it's slow, but at least it's something. And so that's what my suggestion would be, would be like try, don't, like overwork yourself, mm. um, and if you want to make it in the, in, in the institutions, and if that's something that you feel passionate about, like I'm sure that you can, I'm sure that you can make your way into those systems and do some really good work.
1: Mm, absolutely. And Madeline, the next question is for you specifically, um, and the question is following on from Arie talking about unpaid work and community radio. You talked about your pathway to radio, where you had media opportunities through paid traineeships and internships. For young First Nations people and people of colour that don't have the privilege to study journalism at university, how easy is it to get paid traineeships and internships? And are these valued as much as degrees when trying to get jobs in media?
2: Yeah, so um, first of all, I don't, this, uh, so Read the Room is the first time I've actually done radio uh, properly, so I don't know too much about getting into radio, um, but I didn't Um, go to university. I did a cadetship, so I just basically – I can speak to, like, print, and I guess if you applied the same principle to radio, um, I think it could be worthwhile. But basically I just harassed the editor of my local paper. I just kept sending him, like, relentlessly in high school, sending him stuff that I'd written until he said, all right, I'll I'll give you a job, like, or an interview at least for a job. Um, and that was the old school way. People still um, – and that was how – yeah, well, I'm 27 now. That was, what, 10 years ago. So people were still doing degrees to get into journalism. Um, uh, so I guess, like, with radio, though, from what I've seen so far, I think volunteering is a really good way. But I know it's not a paid way to – you know, obviously you're not getting paid. But it, that's the same kind of thing that I was doing, you know, writing relentlessly in my own time to the editor of my local paper for him to give me a chance of having a paid job. Um, and I know that sucks and it's probably not the answer you're looking for, but that's honestly just the media in general.
1: Sorry, I don't know if any of you heard that, but that was my dog snoring away. Obviously doesn't find the conversation <laughs> as inspiring as I do. Uh, thank you, Adeline. Uh, the next question is, should those aspiring to work in media tolerate tokenism to get ahead? I feel like, Jim, you have something to say about this
4: yes i do um, i think if you want to you can that's fine however i think when you are tolerating tokenism you need to make sure you are aware of the impact it can have on others you may be fine with it you might be okay with you know being treated as a token and trotted out every time they need a muslim person or a whatever person um, to you know say something about whatever issue but others may not be and you need to be conscious of that um i I think that one of the things, um, we need to keep in mind as people of color is that, um, there needs to be a, a degree of solidarity with, um, you know, how we, how we act and how we treat each other and how we also, uh, respond to, uh, white power structures. And I think, um, by, uh, selling, you know, or maybe not selling yourself out or, but, you know, sort of selling yourself short to get ahead, I think is, um, is one way that you, um, can, Degrade conditions for other people because they see you as a person of color accepting poor behavior, um, and they may feel like their poor behavior is okay in future. And I, I think yes, it's okay if you're okay with that personally. Um, I, you know, it's the same as my friends who work for news, um, you know, news corp, I should say. I don't, um, you know, I don't begrudge them of their um, their agency and their choice to do so, but um, it's just not something that I would personally choose to do because I would rather have solidarity with um, all, all the people of colour who are in the media and other industries.
1: Mm. Yep. The next question is, um, how effective do you think the diversity and inclusion forums or discussions happening across media organisations will be? Um, Madeline, I know you're involved with Media Diversity Australia, so maybe you have a bit more background on what kind of discussions are happening at the moment.
2: Uh, Yeah, I can speak on like kind of what panels and stuff I've been on. I think that there is a lot of discussion. It's really good. I think the Black Lives Matter movement honestly has really made, made people pay attention and sort of open their eyes, especially in the media, because, the, you know, obviously the media is reporting on it all the time. So the people who work in the media are more interested in learning more and also thinking about their own personal ways of how they can, um, you know, amplify the voices of their colleagues, um, make their workplace more inclusive which is really good. Um, so that's the feedback that I've sort of been getting. Um, and I think even the fact that they've been having these kind of panels, um, I did one for the ABC a few weeks ago where they just, uh, we talked, it was like an in, you know what do you call it, an in-house one, mm-hmm. um, which was really good. And I, I find that a lot of organisations are doing that. So I do think that it does make a difference even just talking about it or even if you're like in an organisation, getting your manager to maybe one on um, and inviting people to speak um, yeah mm. I think it's helping working going somewhere <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: yeah yeah uh, the next question is racist is always in quotes and the press council has been pretty consistently useless in response to complaints about racist coverage is there anything you'd like to see change regarding industry standards and how they're managed open to anyone
5: I think that, um, every single newsroom in this country, um, this includes community radio, everyone needs like anti-racism training. Cause I think that, I think, and, and it needs to be done by like the right people. Cause I think that this is going to be an industry post Black Lives Matter. I think that we have really kind of poor racial literacy in this country generally. There isn't very healthy kind of discussions about the real kind of colonial and genocidal history and present of this country in schools, at universities, like, and so I can't imagine that someone who, you know, might go through uni and or might go through a cadetship or whatever and ends up working in mainstream media is really going to have a really sophisticated understanding necessarily um, of race in this country, unless you are a person of colour and haven't had an option but to experience it, right? And so I think that um, the expectation that you know, that we come in and we fix that is, is not okay. I think that there needs to be some really proper, like in-depth anti-racism training, just because I think the understandings in this country and the relationships um, between like racial groups and stuff like that are not very well understood. I just don't, you know, I've seen it in newsrooms, I've seen it in the workplace, and I've seen it at university and whatever, and it just doesn't seem like there is a sophisticated understanding. So I think that is like a really important first step for there to be an acknowledgement that actually we're not experts in this, and actually we suck at it, right? We're <laughs> the furthest thing from experts. We're really, really bad. We don't, you know, I might be the editor-in-chief, or I might be the, like, the head of the newsroom, right? The chief of staff, or whatever, whatever. And I don't have a proper understanding of like racism and anti-racism. I don't really know what the history and the current circumstances for certain communities are in this country. That is such a, like, that's such a gaping hole of knowledge. Um, And then what ends up happening is that certain people have to plug that gap. So that for me would be really important for all staff um, for that to be like a priority and starting with, proper anti-racism training and his, history um, with respect to First Nations people in this country. I think that that is like the first step, if every newsroom could do that, and then kind of work our way,
1: yeah. Mm, That's thing. And the next question, um, I really love this question. I'm excited to this. How important has social media been in helping you get your voice heard and demonstrate your talents? and in getting more non-white, non-traditional voices heard in particular, and what social media should one aspiring media person focus on?
2: Um, I can answer this if you like. (laughs) Um, I found that, so for me, journalism is sort of activism in a way, um, because it's a way of, I don't know, of engaging a bigger audience. Like you can really sort of write to the way people think and get them to think in a different way, I guess. It's kind of manipulation in a way um but I think so for me, Twitter has been really good because um i just I've always been someone that will just say what I want to say, um so to sit there and be able to have that platform where I can just say whatever I want, I say jim laughing <laughs> um, is um has been really important, and it has been a way of getting my voice heard um because I feel like that's a lot of people if you say some if you have something to say and you say it. You know staunchly and um you know like as fact then people are going to listen to you and especially white people are going to listen to you and i found that that's been my most effective way of getting my point across and getting um communities messages heard and yeah
1: yeah and i feel um jim you might have to add on because i love your tweets they
4: are very funny. So. Yeah, uh, thanks. <laughs> it's always really scary if someone says like, oh, I've seen your tweets. I really like them. I'm like, which ones, you know, like, but, um, yeah, I, I agree actually. Twitter is a, a very, you know, if you want to network with other people of color in the media, I think Twitter is probably the best place to do it. Um, you know, like I, uh, Oz actually reached out to me after I had a big tweet, uh, you know, t- calling Sam Newman a clown, you know, like it's like a, like that was, that's actually how it happened. Maddie's laughing at me, but it's like that, that's like, you know, as silly as it sounds, like, you know, flash in the pan moments like that can actually, um, you know, like help, uh, push you along. And so I think making sure you network with other people of color through Twitter is probably a good thing because, you know, you can sort of bypass all the, all the, um, uh, I'm trying to think of, I'm just going to say bully because I can't think of another word, but like, you know, that you have to deal with in a, in a newsroom, you know, there's no, um, existing power structure there that you have to sort of like, you know, work your way through to, you know, um, get heard. It is a, it's almost neoliberal in like the purest sense. It's like, you know, if it's like a good tweet, it'll do well. And, um, you know, from there, like, you know, you reach a, a wider audience and, you know, people who, um, you know, you'll, people who you, I guess, need, um to to be seen by we'll see you
2: i think also uh just on what jim said like oz and i we have followed each other on twitter for like i don't even know how many years like years and years and years and years um and then we just became friends through twitter because we liked each other's tweets and then we like you know became friends and then he was moving to melbourne and then yeah so that's like and out of that has evolved a amazing friendship and we also have our show together now which has been awesome um, and I think, and same with Jim, like, uh, I met, like, Jim and I followed each other on Twitter. Then we're at the same work event. We already had that relationship from online. So we became friends. And, like, it's it's really good, you know, to connect with other journalists that way. And especially journalists of colour um, who you may not usually approach or whatever else. And, you know, it's a lot of banter and back and forth. And, yeah, like, I always encourage people of colour to DM me. Um, become my friend especially black journalists always trying to build up other people's profiles because I think if you have any kind of profile you should be you know helping other people of color come with you mm, yeah and what is your twitter handle for people to follow mine's at madeline it in the chat
4: mine is um at the jim malo it's like <laughs> like t-h-e jim m-a-l-o
1: mm-hmm. and areege do you have twitter as well you do but
5: yeah, I, I don't to do that. Um, yeah, conversations on social media are kind of awkward because most of my socials are private. But my Instagram's now public. I was convinced by friends to do that. I had to archive lots of stuff. You can follow yeah, you can follow me on Twitter if you want.
1: That is fine. You kind of have to be open to this now. Sorry. Um, <laughs> you're a celebrity, so you know. These yeah. Um someone just commented on the chat box Jim, that they love your tweets as well. So no pressure. Um, but keep going. Um, we've got two more questions. I'm very aware that we're reaching the end of the um, conversation. Um, the next question is: How has the panel dealt with important stories or topics like Palestine, white terrorism, etc., being spiked or de-incentivized in the newsrooms? Um, I think the latest thing that happened to reach, you know, with the hard lockdown of the towers. Um, you might be, you might have some thoughts about this question about how this kind of important stories are being spiked or de- incentivized in the newsrooms.
5: Yeah, it's it's um, it's really hard to like. This, I'm gonna start crying. No, it's really hard to feel like what you care about actually matters in this country when you're not a white person. So, and and this is like both funny but really sad because. For me, during the hard lockdowns of the towers, it was actually the most important thing in my life. Like, there was nothing more important to me in that, t- in that period of time than what was going on to my family and my community who were locked up in public housing towers. And I was dealing with the media for residents and volunteers in the community on the ground, and I was just so upset with the, the, like, useless coverage of it, right, and people tried to do good stuff and there were some journalists, there were longer form pieces on the Age, Saturday Paper, Guardian, that tried to do their best. But it got to a point where it just became this rolling news story, which I understand, like that's a newsroom and it is what it is, but it just really turned into something that, and I think that there was a good kind of media strategy and we did get some good stuff out there, but it did turn into something that... um was a little bit disrespectful. So what ended up happening was I'd get phone calls from people and they'd be like, hey, we need a um we need a resident and we need a volunteer, but not the same one that was on um breakfast TV this morning or not the same one that was interviewed here and there. And it's like, you're actually talking about people who are locked up in their houses indefinitely right now. I can do what I can, but I also – there are not everyone wants to speak with you people. Nobody trusts you, right? And that was like a really unusual moment to be on the other end of that, like as the media – I was like the little PR person for the town. It was such a weird experience speaking to my colleagues, like past colleagues and stuff like that, being like, hey, what are you doing? Like you should be so lucky that these people are willing to speak to you knowing how terrible your coverage has been. Um And so what, yeah, so there's that part of it. And so sometimes it's a bit of a relief when um people don't reach out because sometimes it's better to be to go unnoticed than for it to be butchered. But at the same time, then you're absolutely right. What ends up happening is that these big stories that are really, really big and important stories that happen within the justice system in this country, but also in other areas like housing or whatever it might be. End up not being covered. So one thing that I've noticed in mainstream media is, um, Mm -hmm. and I've seen it in, in newsrooms, unfortunately, is that, um, people don't want to cover refugee stuff anymore. Mm -hmm. We don't want to do refugee stuff anymore. Mm -hmm. And it's like, what do you mean you don't want to do refugee stuff? We, it's just, because it's just, it's just happening. It's a constant thing. And it's like, well, the story is that it's a constant thing. The story is that nothing has changed and that people have been locked up for such a long time. Mm -hmm. And they're like, yeah, but we can't get people interested in that, in this anymore. And so then what does that mean for, like, the humanity of these people? And so there's so many places my brain goes as well because sometimes the coverage is bad and whatever um, with this question, but I think it's a really important one, a really important one.
1: Sorry, I should have preempted you for that question. I know it came out of the blue, but only because, um, you know, I saw you controlling that that whole team and doing your best while being so personally involved. And, yeah, just, it was an amazing job, so I thought... Yeah, you'd be the best person to answer that question. Thank you. Um, Our final audience question is, um, do you have any ground rules for yourself regarding boundaries or ensuring that you're not being used as a vessel for extraction by your colleagues or your organisation? I think all three of you can answer. Um, Maybe we'll start with you, Jim
4: uh no i don't have any hard fast rules i'm sorry i just tend to go by my gut feeling if it feels right it's fine if it feels wrong i'll speak up um i think one important thing though is like don't be afraid to speak up when you feel like you are being used or you know you aren't comfortable with what's happening because um it's better i think to be for me anyway the decision i've made is it's better to be true to myself than to be um a model minority so yeah
0: yeah thank you what a fantastic discussion. Thank you so much to Anya for organising and facilitating it. Huge thanks to our panellists, Madeline Heyman-Reber, Areej Noor, Jim Marlowe and Osman Faruqi. Thank you also to Democracy in Colour and special shout-out to our current affairs coordinator, Gab Reid, for her support putting this all together and Carly Back for her editing magic. Have a great day.
3: You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia.